looking at the, uh, uh, we're kind of in between series, so I was really kind of in limbo here because we, we're going to start this on Father's Day and we wrapped up the I Am God. And just to be honest with you, looking at the I Am God and looking at Jesus up close for this many weeks that we've done, it's just hard to walk away from that and not think, so what? What do we do with this in application? And so there's a lot of different passages that we can look at, and I wanted to look at one more in between this week, and uh, then we'll get ready for this new series, Dad's Gone Mad. Now, before, well, let's, let's pray. We want to pray. Father, we come, and we thank you that you are the You are who you will be. You are what we really need when we need it. You are there. It's up to us to receive you, to place our faith in you, to follow you. So, Father, we think about people like the Unruhs who have done believe you are who you are, that you are the I am God who will be there for them when they need you and before they need you. And, and you know what they need. They will risk all in sharing with the people of Sri Lanka. We pray for you to empower them to make their efforts bear fruit, that they would abide in you and they would go forth to bear the fruit that you have chosen them to do. We pray, Lord, for our country. We pray in this time that we would remember that freedom has a cost and freedom is never shed. There's sacrifices that are made. And Lord, in the same way in the spiritual realm, high price. You paid that price with your own blood. And so we think about the next we think ahead. We think about junior camp as they leave tomorrow. And we pray, Lord, that you would that is taught, that you would work powerfully through the speaker, that you would prepare the Lord the truths that they're going to hear. Lord, you are an amazing God, and we are here and that you will show up, and we expect great things because you're a great God. And all God's people said together, amen, amen. All right, well, turn your Bibles to... Uh, uh, the book of John, and we're going to look at John 8. Here your Bibles, and we're going to look at John John 8. And uh, as we do, I want to share with you this, this story. Uh, a four-year-old was at the pediatrician for a checkup, and as the doctor looked down her ears, he asked, do you think I'll find Big Bird in here? And then the little girl, she just didn't say anything, and and so next, the doctor took a tongue depressor and looked down her throat and said, do you think I'll find the cookie monster down here? And again, the little girl didn't say anything. Then the doctor put a stethoscope to her chest, and as he listened to her heartbeat, he asked, do you think I'll hear Barney in there? And at this time, the girl replied, oh, no, Jesus is in my heart. Barney is on my socks. All right. Jesus is in my heart. Okay, she didn't know about anything else, but she knew about Jesus, and she knew what her relationship was with Him, and she knew where she stood with Him. Well, I hope, after studying the I Am statement of the I Am God, after looking at the Gospel of John, you know where Jesus is, you know where you are in relationship to Him, and it's amazing other places. We always hear about these seven I Am statements, but in reality, in this gospel, in a, in a sense, you can study the whole gospel of John and discover I am statements, and I have them there. There's several other places in John's gospel where Jesus either comes right out and says it or implies by what he says that he is the I am God. And I want you to see all the different ways. So look there in your notes. When he was witnessing to the lost, the woman at the well, here's what he said, and you may not realize this. A lot of these Stories are stories that you've heard, 
But you didn't realize that Jesus was claiming, I am the great I am. Notice, when witnessing to loss in John 4, 26, Jesus said to her, I am the one speaking to you. She says, who is the Messiah? If I knew who it was, and he says, I am the God of the Jews, speaking to a Samaritan. When walking on water to the disciples, when Jesus walked on that water and they were afraid they were going to drown, here's what he said to them. I am. Do not be afraid. Saying, but we do, and we know that in the midst of whatever storm you may be going through, whatever chaos, you just remember, I am. Do not be afraid. That's just good stuff. Not you are, he is. It's not I am, it's he is. Do not be afraid. That's just good stuff. Okay, that's where you nod your head, smile, and say, yeah, that's good. Okay, third, when warning and witnessing to Jewish leaders. Here in John chapter 8, we're going to see no less than four times to those who were resisting him, those He says this, I am the one who bears witness about myself and the father who sent me bears witness about me. In verse 24 of John 8, he says, I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And then he says again, so Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am. Now that's a radical statement. When you see me as a broken on the cross, then you will know that I am. I am the I am God. That's the radical God that we have. You know, not God that's far away and judging us, but a God who has come down, become one of us, took our sins, his body broken, his blood shed, and he's saying, look, look at the cross and you will see I am. I think that's beautiful. And then he said to him again, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was him, get any clearer. Then he says it again in John 13 in the upper room when warning his disciples of his coming betrayal and death. He says this, I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe I am. He said, look, I'm, I'm, what's going to happen in the next 24 hours is going to rock your world. You think I'm the conquering Messiah. I am, but I'm first the suffering servant. And I'm telling you this ahead of time so that you don't waver in your belief. I am the I am God. And then once more, following the upper room, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And when welcoming his enemies into the garden, how would you welcome your enemies? You're the son of God. You're God. Come to crucify you as a pretender, as a blasphemer, as a criminal, as a rebel. What would you do? If, how would you greet your enemies? Well, God, ha- Jesus has to be true to who he is. And so he says, I am. But notice what happens. They, they answered him. He asked them, the lead up to this verse, they, they, um, he asked them, who are you looking for? He takes the initiative. They show up and he takes initiative and says, Who are you looking for? And here's what they said. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth. We're looking for a man. He's a rebel. The Jew says he's a blasphemer. We're looking for a carpenter's son. A carpenter from Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am. Now, you could say he's merely saying, oh, I'm he. and, And I am he. And that can be translated that way. But notice what happens. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with him. And when Jesus said to them, I am, or I am he, but I think it's really his intent was to say, I am, they drew back and fell on. So we know that even though you could, he's just identifying, oh yeah, I'm that guy, Jesus of Nazareth. When Jesus said, go a me, Greek, two Greek words, these guys fall to the ground and then they get up and they arrest him now i don't know how you know sin is stupid and we've all we're all sinners and we're all stupid when we sin i mean that's pretty dumb to say he says i am you get knocked to the ground 
because of his divine authority. And then you go proceed to arrest him and put him on a cross. Wow. Wow. And then finally, one more time in verse 8, Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. He's in charge. He's in charge. Why? Because he's the I am God. Basically what he's doing there in the garden, uh, it, it reminds me of the story. There was a man who was celebrated his 100th birthday. And a news reporter was sent out to talk to him and ask him, what do you always ask a guy that lives to 100? Yeah, what's your secret? How'd you do it? Find out what his secret of longevity was. And the old man said, I don't have any, I don't have an enemy in the world. That was his answer. I don't have an enemy in the world. The reporter was in awe of this and asked how he was able to manage such an amazing feat after living so long. And the old man replied, I don't have any enemies because I have outlived them all. Okay? And that's basically what Jesus said. Look, his enemies are there. It's like, look, damn, you can do to me whatever you want. And whatever you and you, I'm going to rise again. Why? Because I am who I am. I am the I am God. Now, he doesn't stop there. When witnessing of his kingship to Pilate at his trial, now he's arrested before Pilate. Notice what it says in John 18, 37. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. Now, this is the most... Less direct, but he's still, he's saying, I am, I am a king. For the purpose, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Now, Jesus made it clear that as the I am God, he is everything we need when we need it. He is everything we need when we need it. And there's only two responses. There's only two responses. Those who respond in faith to... Because basically what Jesus is doing is he himself saying, Look, I am who I am. Do you want me? I know you need me, but do you want me? And everybody that responds in faith to his offer of himself will follow him. You will follow him and enjoy eternal life. I so hope that as we've gone through this series, that you are following Jesus for having seen for who He is. Those, listen, it's not enough to make a decision in the past. It's not enough to go through the ordinances of the church and be baptized or receive, receive communion. Those things are not evidence of having received the I Am God. Evidence that follows hard after Him. Like the unruhs, with a passion to reach people and share what Jesus has done for you. But those who resist Him, those who resist His offer of Himself, will never find true satisfaction. Those are serious words to write down. They will never find true satisfaction, and they will suffer eternal judgment. So, here's the question I want to answer today. How do we respond how do we respond to those resist or reject Jesus as the I am God? We've gone through this series. We've seen the seven statements. We've seen it from the Testament. We've seen it from the New. I hope you've received him. But now the question is, how do you respond to those who don't receive him like you do? How do you respond to those who resist the I am God? And so what I want to do is take you right into John chapter 8, and we're going to be looking in John chapter 8, we're going to be looking at verses 21 through 30, and we're going to look at people who resist Him. But here's how we respond, and it's a twofold response. The first response is this. We need to joyfully try to win people who resist Jesus. We need to joyfully try to win. I want you to circle that word joyfully. There's nothing worse than a gloomy Christian as a witness for Jesus. Yeah, you really ought to come to church. Yeah, you really ought to. I have to. <laughs> you ought to, too. Misery loves company. Come, be with me. Right? I mean, 
But, you know, you say, oh, I would never say that. That's why it's funny. Yeah, no, it's funny because that's how we know we sometimes project, right? Listen, we should be joyful. If we know this I am God, who is the bread of life, who is the world, it's everything we need when we need it, who comes through in the storm and says, do not be afraid, I am. If that's our God, we ought to be joyful. Instead of gloom and doom people watching Fox or MSNBC or the news or re- and all doom and gloom. Right? So joyfully try to win them. That's the first response. I hope this summer, and I've tried to instill this in, in you, and, and I try to do it myself with my family, that you don't take the summer off spiritually. Summer is a time for harvest. So what are you going to do this summer? Having studied the I Am God, are you ready this summer? Are you going to be intentional? Winning people who do not know the God that you know? How do we do that? Well, notice what it says. We win the loss by showing them how Jesus is everything we need and telling them how they can find everything they need in Him. Show them how He's everything we need. So what we do is we let people get into our life, get into our struggles, and say, look, here's how Jesus is meeting my need. He, he's the I Am. Here's where I lack, and here's what's coming through. So you show them how He is everything you and I need, and then we tell them how they can find what they need in Him. Now, I have there the seven I Am statements, so let's go through this. Here's what we should be doing. And think in terms of this summer. We ought to offer the bread of life. Offer the bread of life to those who are hungry for more than this world can ever offer. We should just be, we should be listening. And when people talk like, hey, I mean, first of all, how many of your coworkers communicate a stream of dissatisfaction? In life, how many communicate a steady stream of dissatisfaction in their relationships? I mean, just with the government. I mean, just with their kids. I mean, we really think about it, we swim in a sea of discouragement. Would you agree? And basically, what they're saying is, "Look, I'm hungry for satisfaction, and we ought to be there offering the bread of life." And yet, we're like the disciples. They were, had that opportunity to feed the multitude. We're like, who's going to feed them, Lord? And he says, you are. Now take what I've given you. Take me and offer it to them. Secondly, we shine the light of life. We shine the light of life for those who are blinded to who Jesus really is. He is the light of the world. And so we shine the light on who Jesus really is. Do you realize a great witnessing this summer? You ought to ask people, who do you think Jesus is? Jesus asked those questions. He, that was one of his favorite questions. Who do, they, who do they think I am? Ask somebody, who do you think Jesus is? A lost person, a friend of yours. Who do you think? And then shine the light on who he really is. Number three. If you're going to do this, it means we sacrifice our lives like the good shepherd to seek and to save his lost sheep. We have to sacrifice. The biggest thing getting in between you and lost people is self. The biggest thing getting between you and what you know to do and what I believe if you're born again, you really want to do is self. Self Self-pursuit, self-satisfaction, self-advancement, and you say, well, I don't live for myself, I live for my kids. That's self. They're merely an extension of you. Merely, well, you know, seeing our kids succeed is a very dangerous, you have to very dangerously, you have to discern your, your motivation. Is this really about their success or is it about mine? And how am I measuring Well, we're getting into the next couple of weeks. Good stuff, though. Sacrifice our lives. Remember what the good shepherd is? I laid down my life for the sheep. Well, if we're going to seek and save the lost, we're going to have to lay our lives down to reach out to them. Number four, we open the door to his sheepfold for those who are outside, those who are 
I have in the outside, sorry, who are on the outside of God's goodness and grace. We open the door to the sheepfold. Now that's, the door is Jesus and the gospel. In a very real way, when we're gathered, we're the sheepfold. And the way to reach the lost is invite them to come. You know, come to the worship service. Come to my group. Not in the summer, but in the fall. But right now is a great time to get your group, invite your group to come to this, come to this class. They don't have the excuse, well, I, you know, Sunday morning, Sunday night. I'm, no, you don't have Sunday night. So come, come invite advancing people. Number three, we offer resurrection life to those who are dying in their sins. We offer life. Would you like abundant life? Number six, we share the way, the truth, and the life with those whose hearts are deeply troubled. We share the way, the truth, and the life. Listen, when people are hurting, look for opportunity to share. Hey, here's the way you can perceive this in a different way. One who can put a different perspective on. And number seven, we bear fruit that remains by staying on mission with the I am God and going to those who need to hear. You've got to get out and go. You've got to go to where they are. You've got to hang out and you've got to meet their There's the seven I am statements. There's a review of the weeks that we've had. But notice a couple things. We're to go, well, look over to John 15. Look at John 15, 6 real quick. 15, 16. John 15, 16. John 15, 16. Because I want to get you, I want you to see that the way we respond to people who resist, we go to them and we try to win them. John 15, 16. Here's what Jesus is saying to you and I. If, if, if you're a believer, if you are a Christ follower this morning, if you have crossed the line from darkness to light, from being hungry to being satisfied, from, from dead to life, from all, you've received Him. Here's what He's saying to you this morning. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go, go, bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide or remain, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, He may give it to you. Now, I don't know how you can't get any more joyful than knowing that. I didn't choose God. God chose me. He wants me. He not only wants me, but He's got a purpose for me. He's not only got a purpose for me, but as I seek to accomplish that purpose, whatever I ask in His name, He'll grant me the power to do it. Now, that ought to be a joyful witness. Amen? It ought to be so joyful that you go bear fruit wherever you are in life, even if it's on the moon. You say, what are you talking about? Yeah, do you realize that a Christ follower witnessed to Jesus, uh, witnessed about Jesus, and sought to bear fruit on the moon? Did you know that? How many have no clue what I'm talking about? I didn't have any clue until I read this story. Listen to this story. It's a true story. In July 1969, two human beings changed history by walking on the surface of the moon. Again, we take this kind of stuff for granted. We shouldn't. That's a radical step that mankind took. But what happened before Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong exited the lunar module is perhaps even more amazing, if only because so few people knew about know about it or even now know about it. I, I didn't know about it. I'm talking about the fact that Buzz Aldrin took communion on the surface of the moon. How many of you knew that? Anybody know that? It's called communion. Anyway, he did. Sorry, time. The background to the story is this. Aldrin was an elder at a Presbyterian church in Texas during this period in his life. And knowing that he would soon be doing something unprecedented in human history, he felt that he should mark the occasion somehow, and he asked his pastor to help him. And so the pastor gave him a communion wafer and a small vial of communion wine. Buzz Aldrin took it with him out of the Earth's orbit and onto the surface of the moon. Now stop and think. This man's thinking. I am about, and, and for an astronaut, 
they, you know, if you've seen, you know, the right stuff, is that what it's called? Anyway, I mean, these guys, uh, you know, they competed to get in there, and they're in there, and now he's thinking, all the world, the known world, is going to be focused on us. What can I do to exalt the name of Jesus? So he asks his pastor, wise move. Okay? And in partnership, here's what he does. He and Armstrong had only been on the lunar surface for a few minutes when Aldrin, Aldrin made the following public statement. This is the LM pilot, lunar module pilot. I'd like to take this opportunity to ask every person listening in, whoever and wherever they may be, to pause for a moment and contemplate the events of the past few hours and to give thanks in his or her own way. He then ended the radio communication there and on the silent surface of the moon, 250,000 miles away from home, he read a verse from the Gospel of John and took communion. Now, here's his own account of what happened. In the radio blackout, I opened the little plastic packages which contained the bread and the wine, and I poured the wine into the cup our church had given me. In the one-sixth gravity of the moon, the wine slowly curled and gracefully came up the side of the cup. I don't know what that would look like, but it had to be pretty cool. Then I read the scripture. Now, here's the scripture that he reads. On the moon, as he's taking communion, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whosoever abides in me will bring forth much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing, even going to the moon. Wow, I think that's just too cool. Okay, now back then, Madeline Murray O'Hare was uh, all upset because now having scripture when they were in space, and so they didn't uh, have this uh, broadcast out, but they didn't keep it silent either. People knew about it, but they didn't broadcast it. But here's what he says. I ate the tiny wafer and I swallowed the wine. I gave thanks for the intelligence and spirit that had brought two young pilots to the sea of tranquility. Uh, It was interesting for me to think that the very first liquid ever poured on the moon and the very first food eaten there were the communion elements. Now, is that just, that's just cool. And I say, you say, you know, don't the the rat, you know, I got to be an astronaut and go to the moon to... to win people to Christ. No, what I'm saying, he's an astronaut and he's on the moon and he's trying to win people and testify of the I am God. What I'm saying is, where are you going to be this week? And how are you intentionally planning and thinking about how I exalt the name of the I am God? You don't have to be an astronaut. Be who you are, where you are, but joyfully try to win people. Amen? All right. Jesus did this in a variety of ways. I have the, the, you know, there's a whole another series that we can do. Jesus would perform miracles and he would say, now this is what I, this is who I am. This is what I can do. This is who I am. He would heal a blind person and then he'd say what? I am the light of the world. What's interesting, he starts out by doing the miracles. Then he starts doing miracles and statements. And then he ends by just making statements. And here's, here's the application I want you to take away. Sometimes, initially, you've got to meet needs before you share truth. But you always need to meet needs and share truth. And then there's going to be a time all, when what you need to really focus on is sharing truth. That's what Jesus did. He started out by sharing needs, performing miracles. Then he started to do that and share truth. And in the end, it just came down to, hey, it's about me. It's about me. So, try to win them. But what do you do if they don't, if they're not winnable? How many of you know people you've witnessed to, but you couldn't win them? What do you got to do? Now, this is the hard part. Well, you, you thought the first part was hard. I know you thought the first part was hard. And here's the harder part. How do we respond to people who resist the I am God? We try to joyfully win them, and then we, we also tearfully warn them. We tearfully warn them. And that's what Jesus does in John 8. So look there in John 8, and let's look at verse 21, and notice what he does. So he said to them again, I'm going away, and you'll seek me. Now what he means going away, he means I'm going to heaven. 
And you're still going to want to know the Messiah. You're still going to be looking for the Messiah and you will die in your sin. That's not a too cheery of a message. And then he says this, where I am going, you cannot come. Now, where's he going to go? He's going to be to die and go back to the father. He's telling these religious leaders, you can't go to heaven. And that's what we got to tell people. You can't be saved. You can't go to heaven because like me, you are a sinner and you're in your sins. Now, that's not popular today. We don't like saying that, but that's what you've got to do. You've got to warn people. Now, notice what, what he goes on. He says, so the Jews said to him, will he kill himself since he says where I am going? You cannot come. He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. Jesus is not politically correct here. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. Now, here's the radical statement. Look at verse 24. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am. Now, the he there is in the the Greek. It's there to complete the idea in English. Literally saying, unless you believe that I am. You will die in your sins. And that's what we need to warn people. We need to warn people that unless you believe Jesus is who he says he is, you will die in your sins just as I would until I met him. Can I share with you how I met him? Amen? Now, in this verse, the verses I just read, there's four verses. In this passage, Jesus tells you how to die in your sins. Anybody interested? Okay. How to die in your... You ready to know how... We got to warn people. If you remain these ways, you're going to die in your sins. Number one, remain self-righteous and you will die in your sins. Remain self-righteous and you will die in your sins. Now, where do we get this? Look at verse 22. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I'm going, you cannot come. Now, let me give you a little background on that. You know, this is, you know, we got to go back into the first century. We got to think through what's really going on. These are Jewish religious leaders. Where do where do they know they are going when they die? Heaven. They know that Jesus is implying, when I go away, you can't follow. They know that he's implying that he's going to go to heaven. But they, but he says, I'm going and you can't go. But they know they're going. So here's what they're thinking. Here's what they think. Jewish tradition said that if you committed suicide, the darkest places of hell were reserved for you. And I don't want to get off track on that. Some of you may have known people that committed suicide. I have a good friend that did here just in the last couple of years. What I'm saying is not what the Bible teaches. I'm telling you what Jewish tradition believed. Jewish tradition believed, the tradition of men, that if you commit suicide, you go straight to hell. So here's what they're they're thinking. Well, we know we're going to heaven because how could you be, you know, good religious people like us are going to heaven. And if he says he's dying and he's going somewhere that we can't go, he must be planning to commit suicide and go to hell because we know we're going to heaven. That's what they're saying. They were so self-righteous. And so confident in their own good works, they could not imagine Jesus going to to heaven and them themselves going to hell. So they assumed he must be planning to go to hell and committing suicide. Now, they knew exactly what Jesus was saying and they knew who he's claiming to be, namely the I am God. But just like their ancestors in the Old Testament, they chose to resist him and remain in their sins. They chose to be self-righteous. Now, what's that mean? What's that mean for us? We've got to help people who think that they're good enough to go to heaven on their own good living. We've got to help them see that that is self-righteousness and that will never get you to heaven. God's standard, we've got to help people see what is God's standard, being good or being like God. For all have sinned and fall short of the standard. And what's the standard? The very glory, goodness, holiness of God. The best of our efforts to please God will always fall short. If I offered you 
a five-egg omelet. And I said, four of the eggs are good, one's rotten, good. And four's one. And I'm going to make this omelet, and I'm going to present it to you with four good eggs and one rotten egg. What would you say, Mike? You're not eating that. You're not eating You say, are you crazy? You really think four good eggs are going to outweigh one rotten egg? You think that? And yet that's what we offer up to God all the time. Except we're probably not four good eggs and one rotten eggs. We're pretty much four rotten eggs and maybe a good egg every once in a while. And we're saying, here God, here I am. I'm good enough. Let me into your heaven. Hey, if you won't eat a five-egg omelet with one rotten egg, you think God's going to let us into heaven when we're riddled with sin? Even the best thing we ever do. In fact, the book of James says that to break, if you break, God's law in just one place, one time, you're worthy of eternal judgment. We don't measure up. The truth is clear. God's uh, works will never get us to heaven. Being a good person will never get you to heaven. If you remain self-righteous without God's righteousness, that's the first warning. The second warning is this. Remain worldly and you will die in your sin. Remain worldly, and you will die in your sins. Look at verse 23. He doesn't just stop and say, look, you're self-righteous. You've got to, you've got to, you've got to stop being self-righteous and start trusting my righteousness. He, says, he said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Now he's really cutting to the chase. What's he saying? He's saying... He's basically really giving us the heart of the gospel. And here's the heart of the gospel. God is up there, holy, perfect, ruling the world. God is up here. We're down here, and we're sinners. We were born sinners, and we we have chosen to be sinners, and we continue to choose to be sinners. God's up here, we're down there. He's from above, we're down here. Anybody who thinks that they can work their way up to God is self-righteous and is thinking worldly. Heavenly-mindedness says, God's holy, I'm not, and if God doesn't do something, I'm not going to be saved. Do you see the difference? The worldly person says, I'm going to get religious. I'm going to be spiritual. A lot of our young people are abandoning religion and saying, I'm into spirituality. The problem is, it's their own spirituality. All right? And so that's worldly thinking. You say, what is the world? The world is the the invisible spiritual system of evil. It's everything around us. It's the way the world thinks. It's the way our culture lives. It's, It's the values, and it's controlled by Satan. It's where we live. We live in the world. We are of the world. Now, what is being worldly like? Well, the world rejects Jesus. The world hates Jesus. The world hates people who follow Jesus. Later in this chapter, he'll talk about it. Worldly thinking is materialistic, sensual, secular, has no room for God. The lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the lust of the flesh, all these things. Here's how uh, Pastor John MacArthur sums it up. Here's worldliness. It's utterly opposed to divine truth, righteousness, virtue, and holiness. Its opinions are wrong. Its aims are selfish. Its pleasures are sinful. Its influences are demoralizing. Its politics are corrupt. Its honors are empty. Its smiles are phony. Its love is false and fickle. That's a pretty good description of life as we know it. And basically what Jesus is saying is, look, as long as you're in that world system, think like that and live like that, you're going to die in your sins. You need someone from above to come in, change your heart, take you out of the world, and put you into the life of God. And that's what the I am God does. He comes down, takes us, 
changes our hearts and puts us in Him. We are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. We are not worldly-minded. We are not of the world. But because we're not, the world hates us. This is the gospel in, the nut, in a nutshell. We can't go to God, but He has come down to us. We are not good enough to enter God's presence, but God left His God's presence, Jesus left God's presence and became good for us so that we could become good in God's eyes. That's what he's saying to them. And that's what we need to warn people. Look, as long as you think like the world, live like the world, you're going to die in your sins. What you need is a heavenly transplant, a heart transplant. Here's the third warning. It's in verse 24. Remain unbelieving and you will die in your sin. Remain unbelieving and you will die in your sin. Now, he's, now he gets to the root of the problem. Let me put it this way. People who are self-righteous. Self-righteous means, that's not even spelled right. You can work your way to God. Work way to God or nirvana or, you know, heavenly P. You know, whatever you call heaven. Man, I'm not spelling. I've got retarded spelling today. Uh, heavenly peace. Self-righteous. Okay? People think that way. They are that way because why? they don't believe in Jesus. I'm going to work my way plus believe in Jesus. The problem is working your way ruins your belief in Jesus. You, you need to believe in Jesus, right? Self-righteous. Then, oh no, worldly, worldliness. What's the issue with that? The issue with that is you're of the world because you reject Him. The root of all of this is unbelief. That's the root. Unbelief is why you're worldly. Unbelief is why we're self-righteous. So Jesus says this radical statement. He says, look, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Listen, in winning people joyfully, we've got to warn them tearfully with a tear in our eye, with a tug in our heart, we need to say, I must warn you that if you try to work your way, you will die in your sins and be forever condemned. If you remain worldly in your thinking, the world's way of trying to get to God, and you reject the Bible and God's way to get to man, if you remain in that way, I have to tearfully tell you that you will die in your sins and be forever condemned. But here's the good news. There's one word in that verse 24 that is a word of hope and summarizes the gospel, and it's the word unless. 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 At least that's how it is in the ESV. Unless you believe. That little word, unless, is pure gospel, offering the hope of salvation once again to a resistant people. Yet it is combined with a warning about dying. There's the beauty. Look, you're going to hell unless you're going. To, so it's not just you're bad. I'm good. Ha da da na 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 boo boo. That's not what we're trying to do. We're saying I was once where you were, and I would be where you are if it wasn't for Jesus. Unless someone had shared him with me. Unless I had repented of my sins and placed my faith. Unless he had come to me when I didn't even know I needed him. When I was looking, but I didn't know I was looking for him. When I was searching, but I didn't know to search for him. Because I was worldly, and I was self-righteous, and I was unbelieving. Isn't that good? It's good stuff. Unless. Here's how one guy put it. The unless opens the door of life in the wall of people's sin. It opens the door of life. We've got to tearfully warn people that unless they believe in Jesus for all that He is, 
unless. Not who they think he is, but who he really is. There's at least eight truths about Jesus that we need to believe in order to be saved. That doesn't mean we have to believe them all. I didn't believe, I didn't know them all. I didn't believe them all the moment I was saved when I was 17. But here's the truth. As you are continually taught about who Jesus is, you can't reject the biblical truth about who he is and be saved. So we tell a kid as much as they can understand, as much as they need to know, but those who truly believe continue to believe that as they grow in their knowledge of who Jesus is. There's more we could say about that, but I I need to move on. Here's the fourth warning. If you want to die in your sins, then remain willfully ignorant of who Jesus really is. Remain willfully ignorant. In other words, choose to reject what you really know to be true. Willfully ignorant willfully ignorant. I have there in your notes a thing that kind of looks like an Italian or Mexican flag because it's got red, black, and green in there. But if you look at that, I want you to see the red is what has already occurred up to this point in the Gospel of John. He's performed all those miracles and he's made all those statements that are in red. What he is about to do and say is in white. Because this this John 8 is a turning point in this gospel. And basically what he's saying is, look. Well, let me, let me read John 20, 20, uh, 24, 25. So they said to him, who are you? He said, unless you believe that I am. And they knew what he meant. They said, well, who are you? Like, you know, we don't, we don't know. Who are you? Tell us some more. And here's what he said to them. Jesus said to them. Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. Now, there's some cool implications in that. Because in the Gospel of John, the beginning goes all the way back to Genesis. But he's also meaning from the beginning of my ministry. He's only got six months left in his ministry. He's been ministering for two and a half years. And he's saying, I am who I've told you from the beginning to Genesis, from the beginning of my ministry... And all that's left for him to share with them, here's the next three things that are going to happen. He's going to give sight to the blind. He's going to raise Lazarus. And he's going to say, I'm the good shepherd. You know what he's saying? You know what he's saying? Look, if you reject, if you willfully choose to reject the truth that you know about the gospel, you are blind, you are lost, and you are dead. But here's the good news. I can give you sight, I can find you, and I can give you life. Isn't that cool? That's all, you know, it, it just, he just, he, he just, he says, look, I'm warning you, I'm warning you that without me, you are lost like sheep without a shepherd, you are blind like blind people who can't see, and you're as dead as Lazarus. But here's the good news. I am the resurrection, I am the good shepherd, I am the light of life. Isn't that cool? It's the same things we need to be doing. We need to joyfully try to win those who are lost, and we need to tearfully warn those who persist in resisting. Now, let me end this passage. Go down to verse 30, and I want to close with this. As he was saying these things, what happened? Many believed in him. Now, not to show, to throw water on our good end on good news. As you read on in chapter 8, not everybody that believed were true believers. You've got to read on in that chapter. But here's the good news. Many were. And many of these who rejected him in the, gospel, in, in the book of Acts, after he died, after he rose, after the Spirit came down, many Jews did believe in him. But we've got to do two things. We've got to joyfully win them by showing them that we know the I am God, and then we have to tearfully warn them that if you remain in your self-righteousness, if you remain worldly, if you remain unbelieving, if you willfully reject the gospel I'm sharing, you will die in your sins unless you believe that Jesus 
is I am. Isn't that good? Let's do something about it this summer. Amen? Let's do something. Let Him save you this morning if you're not saved. Let Him satisfy you if you're living an unsatisfied life. But then let Him send you out and share this good news with the people wherever you are. If, it, if God takes you to the moon, then share it on the moon. If God takes you to the, to the uh, employee checkout place, I don't know, wherever you work. Wherever you work, okay, wherever that may be, then you intentionally share Jesus. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we come and we are humbled that you would choose us in Christ. We are humbled that you would arrange for people with a passion and a burden and a mission to share the gospel with us. And now we have opportunity. That's what's going to happen at junior camp. That's going to, what's going to happen at VBS. That's what should happen in our lives on a daily basis. Father, I pray for my neighbors who I have shared Christ with and yet who seemingly are remaining in the world. And I pray, Lord, that I will not just share the positive message of trying to win them, but you will give me the tears and the compassion to share the warning message that if they reject or remain in the world, they will die in their sins. Lord, I need boldness, but I can have it in you because you're the I am God. I pray for each person here that, that will be saved, that each one will choose to respond, that each one will choose to find satisfaction in you, and that each one of us will stay on mission this summer for your glory and and the good of the people around us. We're so thankful, Lord. Fill us with your joy. Make our joy complete in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.